Luke chapter 18. And uh, you, this graphic that's on the screen, I've used that, I've sent to Scott earlier, I've used that now quite a lot of times. <laughs> because Luke keeps on going back to the issue of the heart and money. In various different passages, various stories that he records for us, this comes up again and again and again. And uh, today's passage starts in, in verse 18, just to let you know in case you're wondering, uh, between what we did last week and what we're doing today, uh, there is a few verses about Jesus and children. We are not leaving those out. I have asked an expert to, uh, to deal with those verses. Uh, Jude is going to take a Sunday morning soon and just share her heart about Jesus and children and young people. Uh, and we look forward to that. Scott, you're looking at me as if you didn't know. <laughs> um, yeah, but today, three things that, that a lot of people want in life. And a lot of, I think a lot of young people probably are surrounded by messages that these three things are what you need to have in order to, to sort of be successful. The first one is wealth. Uh, people out there want to be rich. They want to have no financial worries. They want to have the debts cleared and the bank account in a nice healthy position and be able to sit and, and not worry about where the next fill of oil is going to come from or, or where the next batch of groceries will arrive from. Some people just can't accept that wealth will pass away. Uh, that wealth uh, cannot be carried into eternity with us. Some people just can't pass over the opportunity to make a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Um, take that to extremes. You see some of these old billionaires in the United States and you're wondering what motivates you to, to reach for more. When, when will you stop? So wealth is something that people crave. Youth is something that people crave. Um, People want this wealth and they want this perfect life when they're like 25 or, or younger because we're surrounded again by images of, of young people who have it made, success stories, and uh, we want to have success <clears throat> in our youth. And, and as well, youth is worshipped. Age is the enemy. And people will do anything to sort of reverse the effects of aging. It's good to look after your, your body and eat healthy and get a bit of exercise. But the quest for eternal youth is extreme. Um, I was reading in the newspaper recently about LeBron. Lebr did I pronounce that right? LeBron James. Is, is that right? Um, I don't know anything about basketball. But I know that last night he broke through a career total of 40,000 points. And that's a lot. <laughs> Uh, so LeBron James, he spends, uh, according to this newspaper article, $1.5 million per year on pursuing youth and on fighting aging. And there's another guy who was in the same article. He's an entrepreneur in, I think, in California, of course, had to be. Uh, and he spends $2 million per year on trying to reverse aging. He's 45 and he, his, his regime, his diet, he has all this medical team around him. And he's not just trying to look young, he's trying to reverse the effects of aging on his organs and has all these experts that he pays a fortune to and they're laughing uh, as they walk away with his money as he tries to get eternal youth. Some people just can't accept the truth that the outer man is passing away every day. And another thing people crave is power. 
influence, recognition. They want to be seen. They want to be noticed. They want uh, to go viral. Now, we went viral in December. Remember when we went viral? We went viral, just so you know. Not, not as a church, just me and Rach, okay? We went viral because we did this thing that we do. We've done every year for a, a lot of years in the chemistry department. We, we make what's called the chemistry, which is a Christmas tree made out of chemistry apparatus. And it's a fairly big task putting this thing together. And it's, it's a perk. It's only the upper sixth that get to do it at the end of their, their long, arduous journey through chemistry. Um, and this year, Rach made a TikTok of, of that. And she posted it. And a few hours later, it was like, Dad, there's loads of people watching this. And then a few hours later, we're sitting in the kitchen at home. And it's like 80,000, 90,000, 100,000. Um, and, and it went up and up and up. And the next day, two, I don't know, 200,000, 220, it just kept on going. And do you know what? The, the comments were, and these were coming from just all over the place, but we have to get our teacher to do this. And I'm like, I'm awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and 200,000 people know that I am awesome. <laughs> and there was just a tiny we buzz about going viral and and the power the manifestation of power nowadays is associated with wealth and youth and is seen probably most clearly in the whole phenomenon of influencers who who wield this powerful influence and whatever product a person is using whatever label a person is wearing whatever exercise routine they're following there's a, there's a there's power and there's influence And that's another thing that people crave. Wealth, youth, power. So today we have a story about a rich, young ruler. This is bang up to date. Okay, (laughs) 2,000 year old conversation between Jesus and this guy. All, All of the gospel writers tell us that he was rich. Matthew tells us that he was young. And Luke tells us that he was a ruler, a man of power and influence. He's got everything that our cultural narrative tells us we should be running after. The, the whole, holy trinity of wealth, youth, and power. And yet, he's empty. And he knows he's empty. He knows there's something missing. Let's read through the story and make, make a few comments as we go. Luke chapter 18 and verse 18. A certain ruler Asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. As far as Jewish culture was concerned, it wasn't much different from 21st century Western culture in that people would have looked at this man and said, this guy's blessed. God has blessed him. He's got it made. And don't we sometimes do that as well? Don't, you, you, you have to sort of recheck. You, you meet somebody who's, who's wealthy, influential, and, and maybe young and, and has got everything going for them. And you meet somebody else who, who just looks a bit down and out and a bit of a dropout. And it's very hard not to instinctively put those people on two different levels in your thinking. And the, the Jews viewed this man as being successful. But he knows something's missing. He knows something's missing. 
He knows that his wealth, his youth, and his influence will not get him a place in the kingdom of God. When he says he wants to inherit eternal life, you can put in various different phrases there. To, to enter the kingdom, to get saved, to be born again, whatever, whatever way you want to put it, he knows it's missing. Despite everything else looking like God has blessed his life. And can that be the case sometimes in our hearts? Or in the hearts of, 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 of people who, who may be listening either here or online. And you know that you're not a bad pup. And you've achieved a lot and you've worked hard. But there's just a deep aching inside that something's not right. Something's not right. And you pursue something and you run after it hard and you get it and still something's not right. And you pursue something else and you think once these ducks all line up, once everything's in place, I'll be good, I'll be content, but there's that unsettled soul. <laughs> that sense that there is not, there's something amiss. And I think this guy is quite different from a lot of the other ones who come to Jesus in, in the Gospel of Luke and the other Gospels as well. He is, I think he's quite authentic. I think he's quite sincere. He's not like the Pharisees who, how, who come and try to trick Jesus, trip him up, set traps for him in their questions. He's not like them. This guy, I think, is genuine in his, in his request. In fact, when you read Mark's version of the story, this guy runs to Jesus and falls at his feet in front of Jesus. I don't know that the Pharisees ever do that. So I, I think he's genuine. And he addresses Jesus as good teacher, which is probably a misguided attempt at flattery. <laughs> not, not wise to try to flatter the king of kings of all creation, okay? This, this attempt at flattery is quickly batted away by Jesus. Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. According to a Jewish document that I read part of during the week in a book on Luke, and I've forgotten the name of it, you weren't supposed to refer to rabbis as being good. Okay, to, to, to call a rabbi good was not good practice. People didn't do it. And Jesus won't be won over by it. He just rejects it like any other teacher would. And look at his question. His question is, what must I do? Always looking for something to do, something to achieve, something to run after, something that I'm in control of. I need to pray more. Yes, I do. I need to read the Bible more. Yes, I do. But it's, that's all still I do stuff. What must I do? And Jesus in this story is not after the, the I do's. His response is to, to state some commandments. And listen carefully to the ones he states in verse 20. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. He picks, Jesus picks five commandments. And they're the commandments split into two sections. The first four are to do with how we relate to God. And the last six are about how we relate to other people and what we do. And Jesus picks five of that last six and he sets them in front of the guy. These are the commandments about doing things or not doing them. 
because the guy has asked, what should I do? And these are also the commandments about how we interact with others and how we treat others. And Jesus leaves out number 10, which is interesting, because number 10 is the commandment about covetousness or greed or wanting something that you don't have to the extent that it becomes a driving force in your life. There's no problem with wanting something and there's no problem with working towards it and there's no problem with being diligent about saving money or whatever to, to, to obtain that thing. But when it becomes a driving force in your life and in your heart and when you start to be envious of others who have what you want, then it's a problem. And I wondered that by leaving that one out, is Jesus almost drawing attention to it? Paul says in Colossians 3 that covetousness, or he calls it greed, in, covet in Colossians 3, 5, he says that it is idolatry. Jesus replies in, in terms of how we treat others. And one of the things that we get and we've seen, and this is the, the beauty of having spent so long just moseying through Luke, is over and over and over again, our righteousness our salvation, our faith is manifested in how we treat other people. <laughs> That's where the rubber hits the road. How we treat other people. And the, we the wealthy have been warned repeatedly of the danger of wealth is that it can lead to self-focus. The man in the story who who had a huge bumper crop and he tore down his barns and he built bigger ones and he said, I'm set for life, I'm going to just relax. And, and he, is, he is challenged and he is called out on it because he was just focused on himself. He wasn't focused on the things of God at all. And whenever wealth comes and takes hold of our hearts, possessions can come first and people who God is interested in slip down the list. Jesus, in response, or, or just before he told the story of a good, the, the Good Samaritan in Luke, someone came along to him and told Jesus that these were the two most important commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. The second one yields out of the first one. If the love for God is right, then love for neighbor flows from it. And the young man then says... All these I have kept since I was a boy. He's the special one, isn't he? Yeah. All these commandments. Well, the reality is he probably has. Because as far as they were concerned, they had the sacrificial system that meant if you broke one of, one of the laws, you could go and make sacrifice, make restitution and put it right as if you had kept it. And therefore, for him to say this is not just as arrogant as it might sound to us. But he's still talking about what he does. The rules he has kept. And, and he's, he's now starting to think, I'm on to a winner here because Jesus has listed these five commandments and I've kept them all. And Jesus does not contradict him in verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, he doesn't say you're an arrogant fool. He doesn't say, you know, you're a self-righteous prat or whatever. He, that's fine, but you've, you've kept the sacrificial system and, and, and that's good. You still lack one thing. You still lack one thing. 
or some versions, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be complete, sell everything you have and give to the poor and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Oh dear. <laughs> oh dear, 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 dear. Jesus is probably now turning the man's attention towards the first commandment that he should have no other gods apart from God. You see, Jesus is not satisfied with our outward rule keeping or in this context, um, a maintenance of the sacrificial system. Jesus gets personal. Jesus sees the heart and Jesus goes after it. Hard. This man is probably thinking to himself, I'm a good guy, I'm doing well in life, I'm trying to please God, I'm in. And Jesus basically says to him, I see an idol in your heart. Kill it. <laughs> then follow me. I see an idol in your heart. And Jesus is not teaching salvation by works. He's not teaching the idea that you need to give everything away to inherit eternal life. This command about money is not given to everybody. And we'll talk about that more in a minute or two in case you're really worried about what the outcome of this is. Not everyone is told, um, I should have put that differently. I should have said everybody should give their money away and my sort code and account number will be on the screen at the end of the service. But no, not everybody's called to do this. But he was called to do it because it was an idol in his heart. You see, you and I might both... You know, we, we might both be interested in the same thing. We both, might, we, we both might do the same thing. We both might have the same things. But for one of us, it could be an idol. And the other one, it's not. And for this guy, Jesus goes after the idol. He doesn't go after the reality of having money or having any possessions as if that's always bad. He goes after the idolatrous heart that is corrupted by it. Jesus wants this man to see inside his heart. He has earlier said in Luke that you cannot serve two masters. You can't serve money and God. He didn't say you can't have money. Okay. He said you can't serve it. Some people then almost can't have it because if they have it, they're, they're slave to it. But Jesus didn't say there's anything wrong with having that. He says what's wrong is when you start to serve it, when it starts to drive you, when it becomes the master cracking the whip, telling you what to do instead of you telling it what to do, then there's a problem. Likewise, Paul does not say in 1 Timothy that money is evil. What he says in, in chapter 6, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money, the love of it. It's about the heart. It's about idolatry creeping in. And Jesus here exhibits thinking on a higher level than the guy. The guy wants to keep some rules and get into the kingdom. And Jesus says, no, we've got to do some idol killing. This is not about what you do. It's about your heart. What do you cling to for significance? What do you cling to for security? It is about your heart. What do you put your trust in? What drives your choices every day? Where is your heart? 
And maybe it isn't money. Maybe it's something different. Maybe it's popularity or image. Maybe it's reputation or success. But it drives every decision. And, and John Stott, I think it was, painted the greatest picture of this for me, reading one of his books years and years ago. And he said that materialism is like, is like a goat. You're like a goat. I'm like a goat. <laughs> Not greatest of all time goat, but just bog standard goat. And he says you're like a goat tethered to a post and as long as the goat is tethered to the post it's not free it can only go a certain distance from the post and that's what a love of money is like it just is a rope around us that that is restricting us and limiting us in what we can do and also note jesus says does not just say to him sell everything you have he says give to the poor because again how we treat others And especially throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New, how we treat the poor is evidence of whether or not the compassion of God has really got into our hearts and is being manifested through us. And it's a really common theme in Luke, how we handle our money. And Luke, I think, is hard work. And Luke, I think, maybe the reason we don't tend to hear some, you know, that many sermon series on the entirety of Luke is because he keeps going hard after two things, religion and money. (laughs) He just keeps on nailing the Pharisees for their self-righteous religion, and he keeps on nailing the greedy for their self-centered love of money. And it just comes back over and over and over again. Why does Jesus give this guy such a radical command to sell everything? Nowhere else in the Bible is anyone, to my knowledge, told to sell everything by Jesus. And what is his view of wealth? And if we just pick one single passage, we'll get a skewed picture of what Jesus' view of wealth is. Because in the very next chapter, we've got another person who has a problem with money. His name is Zacchaeus, and he is not told to give away everything he has. He goes and puts right everything that he has done wrong and he makes restitution for all the people he has ripped off. But Jesus doesn't tell him to sell everything he has. This guy gets this command because this idol is in this heart and Jesus is going after it. Salvation does not come through an empty bank account. The issue is trust. Will the man trust what earth can give him or will he yearn for the treasures of heaven? And I, I sometimes wonder, and this is me just purely drifting off into the realms of late night speculation. But I wonder what Jesus would have done if the man had agreed. If he would said, right, I'm off. I'm going to the estate agent to put my house on the market. I'm going to live on the street. I'm going to sell all my clothes and just run around in the nip. I'm, I'm going to give away all my possessions. I'm going to empty my bank accounts. It's all gone. I wonder what Jesus would have done. And I sometimes, again, we're just purely in the realm of my imagination here. I think about Abraham. And Abraham was told to do something even more extreme in sacrificing Isaac. And whenever Abraham took Isaac and took the wood and went up the mountain and was about to go through with it, at that moment there was, there was a voice thundered and said, Stop! <laughs> now I can see your heart. Don't harm the boy. 
And I, I wonder if this guy, if, if the heart had been changed in this moment and he had started to take steps and he had maybe started to, to look after the poor and, and, and actually have a different view of his possessions, I wonder would Jesus have said to him, stop, I can see your heart. You don't have to be homeless and you don't have to walk about without any clothes. I can see how your heart has changed. Just speculation. Mark adds a lovely detail in his version of this story. In Mark 10, 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And we might not think, you know, if Jesus rocked up to, to us today and, and said, sell everything you have and give to the poor, we might, we might not feel loved at that very moment. But one of the most loving things that Jesus can do for us is go after the idols that are in our hearts. Because they'll kill us if we don't kill them. And that, that painful exposure, and you know what, we all go through it. And even I think as we walk with God and as we get older and become more mature in our faith, we still find these idols can creep back in. And we still find sometimes these painful experiences and seasons where Jesus is getting in our face and saying, I love you. I see an idol in your heart. Let's kill it. Let's kill it. And, and as we seek to minister to other people as well, We've got to love them and not condemn them. Jesus does not say to this guy, you're a greedy so-and-so. You should just clear off. You've nothing to do with me. No, he loves them and he goes after his heart. And when we love people, their hearts open up and we're allowed in. And when we just condemn people and give off to them, their hearts just close up and harden and they don't want to hear. Jesus loved him. It's a beautiful, beautiful detail that, that Mark gives us. But Jesus let him go. And this is one of the saddest moments in, in the Gospels. I'd say the disciples at this point are hopping mad. <laughs> because this guy has come along. Everybody knows him. He's an influencer in the local culture. He's rich and he's young. And it's just like, Jesus, if we can just get him in the background for a few of our Instagram pictures, the crowds are going to come flocking. And Jesus lets him go. And I'm sure I can imagine some of the disciples might be saying, Jesus, just soften up the message a wee bit. Soften it up. You know, you're going, you're just, oh, you're too hard line. You're too old school with this. You need to, you need to, you know, just, just go a bit gentler and so that he will come on board and, and travel along with us. And, and then instead of us, you know, sleeping in tents or whatever, we'll be in the Capernaum Hilton or whatever it may be. Jesus lets him walk away. And one of the greatest problems, I think, with, with our evangelism sometimes is that we refuse to let people walk away. Jesus let him walk away. I want you to listen to this guy. I think this, is, this rattles me. How Jesus politely honors our choices. Jesus lets him go. One of the things that we do sometimes if we are going after somebody for the kingdom and we want to see them born again we want to see them renewed we we go hammer and tongs and we want to get someone to make a decision for jesus we want to force them into praying a prayer that they don't want to pray and they're not ready to pray but we want to force them into it 
and we maybe come up with some idea, well, what if that person dies tonight and they haven't got saved and it's my fault? It's not your fault. It's God's fault. It's God's responsibility to keep them alive. It's not your responsibility to force people into something that they do not want to do or do not genuinely mean. Jesus lets him go. Jesus does not stand and think, hmm, this guy's quite close. Uh, I should, I should, you know, bargain with him, compromise, get him on board. He might go home tonight and, and might never come back again. But he doesn't do that. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and Jesus lets him go. And it's been a while since I watched it, but I remember the episode in, in The Chosen, in, in season one of The Chosen, the episode with Jesus and Nicodemus. And then Nicodemus floats around in the background, I think, in a few more episodes, but it's powerful. And you see Nicodemus at one point, and again, this is the, the storyteller going beyond what's recorded in Scripture. But you see one point where Jesus and the disciples are, are, are heading off and to, to do something, and Nicodemus is hiding behind a wall, looking at them, weeping, bawling his eyes out, because he's, his heart is convicted, but he, he's not part of what Jesus is doing. Jesus let him go. In John chapter 6, this huge crowd comes to Jesus and they want to make him king. He's just fed them, you know, in, in the wilderness. And we read that after he teaches them, um, we, we read, uh, where is it? There it is, John 6, verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And Jesus ran after them. No, he didn't. He didn't. They couldn't handle his teaching. It was too hard for them. And they walked away and he let them go. In Luke 9 and in Luke 14, Jesus has encouraged people to count the cost of following him. And then decide. Don't put your hand to the plow and look back. Our responsibility in terms of, of people coming to the kingdom is to love them and show them an authentic representation of the character of God and to go after, if their hearts are open in response to our love, to go after their hearts. It's not to beg, it's not to plead, it's not to force. Jesus lets people go. And do you know what? If, if you, knowing the commands of God and knowing the, the, what, what he wants us to do, this young man wanted, he, he knew that, that he was to be generous with his wealth, that he was no longer to put a trust in it, that he was to give it away and cut loose from it. He, he said no. And he walked away. And we don't know what happened. We don't know what happened. It's just the brilliant storytelling of the gospel writers. Luke probably did know what happened, but he didn't tell us. Because we're left to ponder. It's like those films that, that leave you at the, at the end and you almost have to make up the ending yourself because they've just gone to black and that's it. He went away sad, not angry, but sad. His heart has been exposed. He has issues with idolatry. There is hope for him. He doesn't go away angry and he doesn't shout at Jesus. And... But we don't know the outcome. One lovely suggestion that, that I read in a, in a book, one guy suggested that this, this might have been 
Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man who then provided a tomb for, for Jesus to lie in. That again is speculation, but it's a lovely, hopeful speculation. And the good, the good teacher thing comes to Jesus, as a lot of people do, and say, wow, good teacher, his teaching's awesome, Jesus, I love his teaching, until his teaching hits on an idol in the heart, and then suddenly away he goes. Jesus then says to him, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus has a way with words and pictures that is just class. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. So let's talk for a wee minute here about a non-existent gate in the wall of Jerusalem. There is a story attached to this passage in books and the story is that back in, in the first century, in the walls of Jerusalem, there was a gate. And it was a small gate. It was a tight squeeze getting through this little gate. And, and the gate was called, according to the story, the gate was called the Eye of the Needle. Because it was such a tight squeeze getting through. And a camel could not have walked through the Eye of a Needle. But people would say then, well, if a camel, if he got down on his, on his wee fluffy camel knees and sort of wriggled along, he could just about squeeze through the gate. That it, that it was very difficult, but it was possible. Okay? That story is complete nonsense. There was never a gate in the walls of Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle. That is just an attempt by men to make something up to take away the sting of what Jesus is actually saying. So when Jesus says a camel and the eye of a needle, that's what it is. Don't be thinking, well, if it just wriggled around a bit, it might get through. No, it's not getting through. And there is no gate. It's nonsense. Jesus implies here that the personal identity of a rich person can get so bound up with the things of this earth that it is all but impossible to, to turn that over to, to God. And the crowd then that are listening, they start to twitch a bit and they say, well, if that's the case, who can be saved? Because we've read all these Old Testament scriptures about how, you know, you know Abraham and various other people got blessed with lands and wealth and surely wealth means that, that you know, God blesses us. And if, if those people can't get into heaven, then who can get in? Who can, how can you be saved at all? And Jesus replied, and again, this, this, is, this is beautiful, and this you can miss. If we back up to that verse where he's basically saying there, it is impossible to be rich and get saved, which is what it says. Because wealth gets such a hold on our hearts. He then says in response to this question, who then can be saved? He says, what's impossible with man is possible with God. In other words, God can do a work in the heart that releases people from the grip of that idol so the rich who have been redeemed and who no longer put their trust in possessions can enter the kingdom of God. But it takes a work in the heart because this idol takes such a grip. Human, in human strength, it's impossible for those who trust in wealth to also trust in God. But God can change the heart so that people no longer trust in their wealth. This is what we read in Ezekiel 36. 
I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you, cause you, change you so that you follow my decrees. You can't do it on your own. You're so used to trusting in something. It has become so established in who you are. But God can transform the heart by the power of the Spirit. So you no longer trust in that thing. And Peter, he's a bit worried too. He's, he's like, goodness, are we in trouble? And, and he says to Jesus, we've left all we had to follow you. And it's, it's almost like, you know, Jesus, are we good? <laughs> Just checking. After, you know, that we're okay, have we, have we passed whatever test we needed to pass? And Jesus responds by contrasting the disciples to, to the ruler. They have left everything. They have left everything. In other words, they have, they have not put their trust in those things anymore. Peter and, and the other fishermen left their fishing business and no longer put their trust in it, and they followed Jesus. The boat was still available in John 21 whenever Peter wanted to go back to fishing. It doesn't say that he like, set it on fire. It's, you know, he, he left his trust in those things, and he, he followed the call to follow Jesus. And Jesus says that any, anyone who leaves behind things to follow him will gain many times as much both in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. God will reward the faithful. Now, I have nothing to do with nonsense teaching that if you give £10 to the church, God will give you £100 back or any of that rubbish. Just nothing to do with it. But I'm telling you, and I guarantee that anyone else here who's walked with God any length of time will tell you the same. When you don't put your trust in money and you trust God with your money, and you follow God in how you use your money, he never leaves you hanging. Okay, you might not be putting a deposit on a Ferrari, but he never leaves you hanging. He's faithful. You think about those in the Old Testament, like, like Job. See, Jesus is not calling them, he's not calling us or them to a life of poverty. He's calling us to a life of trust. There's no glory in poverty. All right? there's, no, there's nothing noble or special about choosing, I want to live a life of poverty. Jesus does not say, I want you to live in poverty. What Jesus is saying, I want you to trust God. I want you to trust your Father. Stop trusting in your own resources. Hand it all over to Him and trust Him. Job lost everything. But at the end of the story, he got it all back. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his, his only son whom he loved. But at the end of the story, he's the father of many nations. All right? There's an end to the story. It goes on. And those who have lost, and maybe lost even family relationships, Jesus says, because they've chosen to follow him, family relationships become cold and icy and even broken. But there's a new family called the church. 
And that might for some people become the place of encouragement and strength and support and provision that a family should be. Maybe that's found then in the church. You get much more in this present age and in the age to come eternal life. And the rich ruler was sad because he he couldn't see that. He couldn't look far enough ahead. He wasn't willing to abandon the values of the old age in order to accept the values of the new age. And it is frightening to think how often we choose earth, the values of earth, the values of this current age over the values of heaven. And Peter got this and he went on to write in his first letter about how we are strangers and aliens on the earth. Paul wrote of how our citizenship is in heaven. There's a whole shift of everything. All our resources don't reside in the bank account of earth. They reside in the bank account of heaven. They are entrusted to God to tell us what we should do with them. And Jesus goes on to to present himself as we finish as the perfect example of this. He has called this rich man to give. And he has commended the disciples for giving and told them of the reward that will come as a result of that, both in this life and in the age to come. And he then, in verses 31 to 34, presents himself as the ultimate example of giving and trusting. As he reminds them once again that the Son of Man will be delivered over to the Gentiles, that they will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. He gave the ultimate giving, the ultimate act of trust to walk right into death, trusting that his father would come good, that there was a future Like there was a future for Abraham and there was a future for Job and there's a future for the disciples and there's a future for us. For Jesus, there was a future promise of resurrection and he placed his trust in it. And God did not, literally did not leave him hanging. So where's your trust? And even if money is not a potential idol in your heart, Is there something else that as as we worship and as we just stand together in the presence of God, is there something else that the Holy Spirit is just putting a light on and saying, I love you. I love you. I see an idol. Let's get rid of it. Let's kill it, whatever it is. Father, thank you for the tough, tough love that Jesus shows us how sometimes we feel pain and we feel pressure and we feel exposure, but it is love going after our hearts, exposing the idols. And I pray, Father, this morning for myself and for all of us that when that happens, when the squeeze comes on and we realize there's something in my heart that is not right, And despite all my rule keeping and service and whatever, there's something missing. Lord, I pray by the power of your spirit, we would be humble and we would receive your word and that we would not walk away sad, but that we would obey and that we would trust and that we would follow you, Jesus.
We trust that you have a future and you have a plan and you're not asking us, you're not asking us to do anything that you have not already gloriously done and proved God faithful. We love you, Lord. Holy Spirit, come as we worship, as we lift you up. King Jesus, would you come and would you minister to us for your glory? Amen.